Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. As always, we want to give a special shout out to our season two sponsor, Accurix. That's A-C-C-U-R-I-C-S. Accurix is a infrastructure as code security company, which helps codify security for your cloud native infrastructure by codifying security throughout the development lifecycle. They also manage the popular open source IAC project, TerraScan. Visit them at Accurix.com for more. Thank you for joining us in the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're joined by Drew Malloy from the Defense Information Systems Agency, also known as DISA. Drew, thank you for being here. Yep. Happy to be here. Definitely. So for folks that uh, may not know you or your background, you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been a career civilian for the extent of of my career for the most part. Uh, Started off supporting the Navy with the Naval Research Lab down in D.C., was doing a, a number of different efforts there. On the research end, around mobile computing, advanced displays, and some interesting work around modern sim of RF propagation. So from there, I moved up to DISA, and I've been here for about a dozen years, bounced around from our C2 portfolio, that working directly with, with operators, then moved around to uh, cyber situational awareness, did a stint over in operations with JFHQ Doden. And then right now, I am the technical director for our cyber development directorate. Awesome. Yeah, so part of the reason we were hoping to chat with you today is we know you have a pretty solid background in terms of zero trust and the move for zero trust. Uh, We know DOD is looking to obviously adopt zero trust, and this is playing a key role in that. Can you tell us a bit about this's role and that adoption and and how they fit in? Yeah, so this as an agency supports a lot of the joint and enterprise services that, that we have as a department. Uh, we also operate and defend the the network core, right, the the backbone uh, for the department as a whole. So in the cyber development directorate, we have uh, a number of different portfolios. So we have our, our perimeter portfolio that operates all the internet access points that we have at the enterprise level, as well as all the cyber capabilities that we have at the IAPs. We have our mid-tier, which is comprised of JRSS, which is a, is a program that probably needs no introduction uh, among DOD circles. And then our enterprise endpoint portfolio that has our enterprise endpoint capabilities to include HPSS, ESS, ASIM, a, a number of those that, that folks have, are probably familiar with if they've been in this space for long. We, we also operate a bunch of enablers. So looking at our PKI infrastructure for the department, as well as our enterprise ICAM that we are rolling out. And then we have our cyber SA portfolio, which does really the telemetry and the analytics on all of the data that, that we're ingesting from all of the sensors that we have throughout the network. So DISA plays a pretty key role in all we do IT for the Department of Defense at an enterprise level. And so with what we were looking at with the 2020 NDAA with JRSS language of should we make it a program of record or should we sunset the capability? It really caused us to to take a look internally and challenge ourselves to say, is this is our architecture set up for success moving forward? So another uh, part of our enablers capability is our zero trust portfolio, which in conjunction with the NSA had had published the zero trust reference architecture, and for us uh, it was really to say 
can we eat our own dog food? Do we really want to take our own advice and look and concentrate on end-to-end session-based cybersecurity and not the the really defense-in-depth pillared structure that we have currently? So that's really kind of where we fit in. I really like that you use the term zero trust portfolio. You know, that it's not this sort of like one tool or one thing or one policy, but that it's, you know, it's going to be a set of things. It's going to be a grouping of things. So I, I like how you described that. So as far as integrating some zero trust models, architectures, what do you think some of the biggest hurdles are for that? Like what what might be some challenges there? And then how do you think we can sort of address them? Like are there sort of things that you're working on to try and address uh, any zero trust challenges? Yeah, so there's quite a few, right? Anytime that you undertake an ambitious modernization program like this, there's there's a lot of unknowns that that you're likely to come across, right? And and thinking through uh, and game playing where we're at with the pilot, we're looking at a number of different challenges we currently have. Like you said earlier, zero trust is, it's a set of capabilities. It's not, you can't buy it from a vendor, which although every vendor is more than happy to tell you that that you can, you can't. So integration and interoperability is going to be huge. And right now with the maturity of some of the technologies around zero trust on the market, there's not there's not the thorough standardization that you see in some of the more mature technologies. So how do we drive interoperability knowing that ultimately the Department of Defense operates as a system of systems? Uh, we have a very poor track record of everyone agreeing that this is the right way forward. And so there's usually amongst the services and, and, and other agencies a, a bit of a splintering. And so we really need to concentrate on interoperability, integrating those capabilities so you get that holistic end-to-end picture that can help you with the, especially with the audit side of zero trust and making sure that, making sure that everything that you're doing and all of the access controls that folks have can be viewed in a common area, right? And you aren't just, you aren't just kind of flying blind when it comes to the actual users and what they have access to. So this is a great segue because we were talking a little bit about this beforehand. We were talking about how we need to sort of understand our users, how they're using the technology that we have, how we can work better with our users, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective. So do you think as far as the zero trust model architecture, where do you think the users fit in with that? Because I see sometimes we start talking about, like you said, you know, a vendor's happy to say, I've got a zero trust architecture tool for you, or, you know, I've, I've got this thing that's going to fix all your problems. But how do you think the user integrates with that? And how can we help the user understand what zero trust is going to mean to them? Yeah, so there, there are significant hurdles there. Right. And, and, and not just in one place. So when we talk about the user, we really need to broaden it to all of the users and in, in all of the different roles. First off, the, the end user, what, what is their user experience like? Is it terrible? We, we can easily do a zero trust architecture where you have to log in and, and validate and enter your PIN 10 times before you get to a certain application. And then every 15 minutes, we prompt you for another PIN. That's not that's not going to work, and it's it's absolutely going to lead to end users figuring out other ways to get their job done. We've seen it many times before. So figuring out kind of the human factors and the user experience side is going to be be a big issue when it comes to zero trust. And a lot of times, as a security community, we're a little bit guilty of of concentrating on security at you know the cost of the user experience and or the end user performance of the application. So, so that's going to be one. Another one is 
the systems administration side. And when we talk about implementing zero trust and looking at least privilege and how we're going to implement that, is it going to be a tiered structure? Are you going to have to have two uh, different entities present? in order to do a certain function within an application? Are you going to need to uh, request access for a, a time period and then have to re-request that access on, on you know, certain levels so that you can get that least privileged access for only the job that needs to be done? And how is that going to look from a ConOps perspective? And then finally, the analyst. And how are they going to track all of this. Right now, I would say from a DOD perspective, for sure, and, and cybersecurity as a whole, we've been very uh, network focused uh, in the past. And the application and the data layer have, have really been more or less blind spots for us. And so how do we move the analyst from concentrating on that network-centric view of things to opening the aperture and looking at, you know, the network layer, which is still important, right? I don't want to say that we're we're moving from one to the other, but the network layer, but to include applications and data. And as we move to things like cloud, infrastructure as a service, it's extrapolating a lot of that, those operations and that security. So where do we DOD add the most value? It's at our applications and at our data and making sure they are secure. Yeah, I think that was a really awesome answer. And it also kind of emphasized the complexity of like the modern technology environment, you know, distributed workforce, uh, no longer having this geographic network centric location, a way of approaching things, you know, which we talked about with GRS, for example, GRS, I'm sorry. A follow-on question I wanted to ask you is, like, you kind of emphasized how, you know, you, you have initiatives underway that maybe you may have different approaches at different agencies, different branches of service, for example. Uh, how do, you know, any thoughts around how DOD approaches zero trust in kind of a comprehensive fashion and get interoperability and integration among the services and, and get the full cool enterprise visibility uh, when you have a scenario where everyone may be doing different things, using different tooling, you know, that kind of scenario. Any thoughts around that topic? Yeah, so it's definitely going to be an issue moving forward. So I will say that the DOD CIO has stood up a zero trust portfolio management office, they're calling it, which is essentially going to try to establish governance for all of the services and agencies out there who are moving towards zero trust. And then at the same time, look at the policy that is out there that is preventing folks from moving to a zero trust architecture that we have within the DOD and starting to affect and change that policy. So it's very, very difficult from a tactical perspective. From, fr from a high-level perspective, yes, we all want to play together nicely. Everyone gets along, kumbaya. But uh, from a tactical perspective, I I'll, I'll give you a quick example of one of the capabilities that, that we're looking at for uh, instantiating zero trust is uh, SASE technologies, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So SASE technologies, again, are are not to the maturity where it's an industry uh, that has a lot of interoperability. And many of the SASE products, for the most part, are agent-based. So you have an agent on your endpoint that can then authenticate to the SASE perimeter that will then allow you access control. Now, if, if we DISA decide on one technology for SASE and, you know, say the Air Force decides on another technology for SASE, now, because these are user-based licenses, if we have somebody in the Air Force who needs to get to a joint application, say, for DFAS, for, you know, for your paycheck, then do I now have to buy another 
license for that endpoint? And now do we have to have two agents operating on that endpoint? And we've done some research in conjunction with MITRE to take a look at this. And unfortunately, there's no standards as far as the data that's being passed. There's no common data definitions for what they're looking for. And there's starting to be conflicts on the endpoint between the two agents as to being able to access when one agent is is trying to fight the other on, on what to provide. So that's just an example of one of the things that that's going to be problematic moving forward and how we need to drive industry to start to standardize these things. It's not That's not a problem space that we, the Department of Defense, want to own because it usually ends up in wonky glue glue code got spaced capabilities that are really kind of painful to operate and scale. So we're trying to work early and often with industry to, to drive that interoperability. I I love that example because I think anybody that's been in any kind of operations space has dealt with agents that are trying to that may provide conflicting information or not be looking for the same things and and can be challenging for the user and for the administrators. But so I'm curious, as far as a user experience, as well as a sort of us as cyber practitioners working together with development teams, and you mentioned research and working with, you know, MITRE and some industry, but how do you feel about working with academia? Do you feel like there's maybe some gaps there or that, you know, maybe maybe you're already working with academia, or how do you feel about sort of that integration of private sector, public sector, and academic institutions together? Yeah, no, uh, we love working and reaching out with with academia and and trying to get some some guidance on ways forward, and also teaming with them to give topics. A lot of times they'll they'll come to us specific university consortiums, and they will say. We have a bunch of, of postgrad students. They're looking for interesting topics or or actual key things that in the operational context are hard problems that that we either don't have time for or don't have the 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 capability to really dive deep on. What can we do? And and we've we've teamed with folks in the past to get at that and and helped mentor them in looking at what some of the problems are and and really helping to define the problem space. So yeah, absolutely, we're we are everyone's invited to come help us solve this thing. Right? This is not this is not going to be a DISA thing. And 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 the pilot that that we're currently undertaking. We've already teamed uh, with MITRE, like I said, on the research front, but with all the services. And they've sat on the boards for technical evaluations for what we're trying to do. So we're, we're opening the aperture and making it very inclusive. But absolutely, academia plays a huge role. I think that's awesome because, and I can certainly say that working with people at DISA before too, that it's very much like how we've talked with people at NIST before, that they're very open to collaboration. And I love to see this sort of shift in, you know, I used to, I did public sector for many, many years before working in the private sector. And I love to see this shift in collaboration and communication and sort of integration with some research methodologies with some of the problems that you're seeing. So I love that. So I will sort of ask one more question sort of as far as zero trust, and then I'll kick it back to Chris. So we talk about we talked a little bit about research, but we getting back to zero trust, it's sort of this 
buzzword, right? It's sort of become this like hot thing that everybody's talking about. But do you think that there's anything about zero trust that we sort of talked about it being a profile, but do you think that there's anything else that people sort of maybe don't understand or aren't quite sure what zero trust means or maybe are misunderstanding about the um, about it? So yes, I would say that the first is going back to the you can't buy zero trust, right? This, there's not, there's not going to be a box that you can install in your network, and and you are zero trustified. So, so that's that's one. You know, I think that there's also a lot of talk between zero trust and defense in depth. Zero trust is really an architectural concept, right? It's it's a way of of how you construct your network and your applications in order to tightly control access based off of the user and the device. It's not completely counter to what we are doing in defense in depth. There's still defense in depth, right? There are still multiple security, you know, checkpoints in between to ensure this. The the real departure between defense in depth is that we operated it in silos. And and we, we had the idea that, well, we have the perimeter and we have one group who's going to operate the perimeter. And your job is to operate the perimeter, and then we have another group that's operating the mid-tier, and your job is to operate the mid-tier. And then we have we have service providers who are do, doing the endpoint. And really, there wasn't a lot of communication on end-to-end session-based, what does this look like from a security perspective? It was more, all right, here's here's a checkpoint, here's a checkpoint, here's a checkpoint, and, and we're good. This is looking at more of an integrated view from the endpoint, from the device, to the perimeter and where you're making the access control decisions to the application and to the data. And then having that continuous monitoring on top of it to ensure that you are seeing that end-to-end visibility from a cybersecurity perspective. So it's going to be another big change on the operation side to say, all right, you are no longer just working at the perimeter, right? You are now working and looking at an end-to-end cybersecurity capability. And and what is that going to look like? And how is that going to cause us to restructure the workforce? And where does automation play a role in that to where now we're completely changing our con ops and we can't really people our way out of this problem? We're going to have to automate a lot of what we're doing and make sure that that we drive the department to the most secure, but also the most cost-effective way of doing business. Yeah, I think uh, your answer really emphasizes just how complex the challenge is and, and trying to get that, you know, like you said, the end-to-end visibility and more of a holistic picture of, of the activity. One thing I want to ask you about as well is, you know, we talked about this a bit offline, is uh, the uh, initiative referred to as Thunderdome. Uh, you know, I know that plays a big part as far as this is approach to zero trust. Do you mind telling us a bit about Thunderdome and what that entails? Yeah, so Thunderdome was kind of an outcome that came from when we looked internally at at JRSS, right? And how do we control our own destiny? How do we make sure that we have an answer to what the way forward is for JRSS? And as we started to dig into, does it make sense to have a mid-tier cybersecurity capability, especially when we're seeing a lot more encrypted traffic and we instituting break and inspect at all of our mid-tier capabilities would be a huge performance hit. So how do we do it smarter? Uh, and we had published the zero trust reference architecture in collaboration with the NSA earlier that year. And so we started to take a look at, well, the mid-tier doesn't make sense, but end-to-end doesn't make sense what we're trying to do. And looking at how do we eat our own dog food, if you will, and and follow our guidance on zero, a zero trust architecture. So that 
really started us down the path of Thunderdome. And so we're rolling out a pilot capability in fiscal year 2022. You know, right now we're it's it's in the acquisition phase. But what we are trying to do with Thunderdome is take a look at end-to-end technologies to include the SASE capability I talked about earlier, software-defined networking, SD-WAN capabilities, in conjunction with a customer edge security yeah. stack. So taking what we do at a subset of JRSS and pushing that out uh, as far to the customer point of presence as we can at the edge. And then on the applications and data side, taking a look at application security stacks that we can modernize and stand up in front of the different applications we have both on-prem and in the cloud, because moving to in the cloud is a, a huge uh, push for us as well. So how do we put uh, put application security stacks uh, in front of those workloads? And then finally, how do we tie it all together with uh, defensive cyber operations capability for cloud-based networks? Because like I said earlier, we have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to applications and data. And when we move to the cloud, you no longer are very net-centric in what you're doing from a defensive cyber, cyber operations perspective. So how do we move towards a DCO in the cloud capability that we can install either on-prem or in the cloud? Yes, uh, it, that's really awesome answer. And it's really exciting stuff. You know, you mentioned that, that this, uh, you know, that, uh, zero trust reference architecture that you mentioned, uh, DOD reference architecture for zero trust. Is there anything else you want to point folks to uh, for those interested in seeing where this uh, DOD is headed towards zero, with zero trust? You know, any other references or materials uh, besides that reference architecture that might be worth checking out? Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, I'm biased for the, for the zero trust reference architecture. Uh, we have 1.0 out on the street. 2.0, I was actually reviewing earlier and 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 hope to push that out here uh, relatively soon. CISA has actually come out with some zero trust guidance as well on the federal side that really tracks well with uh, with what we're saying within DoD. NIST, of course, always has has good guidance, uh, good language. There's and, and you know, as far as reference material, O'Reilly has a zero trust networks book that that I think is really thorough. And and then to be you know to be honest, YouTube has has some really really good content, and it can bring you up to speed. A lot of it is is vendor based and it is vendor specific, but it gives you a very a very clear idea of some of the different components within a zero trust architecture and how they operate. Yeah, it sounds like you and I uh, definitely favor some of the same materials. I'm a big fan of the, you know, the 200207 document from NIST, uh, the federal civilian documents around uh, zero trust maturity model, uh, breaks down the five pillars and, and, you know, gives you kind of a, a gauge of where you are across those five pillars within your enterprise. Those are all great recommendations. Uh, so the final question I have for you that we always ask everyone is, you know, what does the term uh, cyber resilience mean to you? So for me, cyber resiliency really encompasses Operational resiliency in the face of cyber adversity, right? And looking at at how we continue to operate and support mission while there are ongoing threats, right? And and while we are on contested contested terrain. So for us, this is this is really it really hits home. It's it's a great term for sure, but it really goes hand in hand with with zero trust and zero trust architectures, because when you're zero trust. One of the key tenets is to assume that you've been breached, right? And figure out how would I architect my one point in in the network if I am assuming that the adversary is already in, right? And so how can I be resilient enough to say, I understand that I'm breached, but I'm still going to be able to support mission moving forward with the adversary 
in our networks. That to me is very powerful. And it, and it hasn't been the way that we've architected systems before. It hasn't been the thought. Our thought has been, again, the defense in depth of we're going to stop them here. And if we don't stop them here, maybe we'll stop them here. But if you assume they're already inside the gates, it brings a completely different mindset to how you do business. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, definitely an acknowledgement of just how you know complex and realistic the, the threat landscape is, and, and what organizations are facing. So, with that said, uh, you know, definitely want to thank you for joining us and giving a great overview of you know DISA and the approach to zero trust for DoD. And uh, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing, Chris.